The Light Switch podcast was created for anyone who loves motivational, inspiring, fascinating subjects, in some cases jaw-dropping stories. After years working as the CEO of a speakers agency in New York, I decided to share some of the marvelous people and stories that we place all over the world at conferences. And the name Light Switch came from the notion of simply turning on a light, illuminating either a part of your world or even the world of one of our guests. Because there is a common denominator among people who have reached a higher plateau in life. They all had a moment when something clicked and it took their life in a totally different direction. I call that a light switch moment. I'm James Robinson and I'll be your host. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Light Switch podcast. Today we have an amazing guest with us. His name is Ferry Zandvit. He is from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and he was in the Bataclan Theater in Paris on the 13th of November, which was a Friday night, 9.40 p.m., three ISIS terrorists pulled up in a black Volkswagen and walked inside the theater armed with Kalashnikovs and their bodies strapped with high explosive, ready to be martyrs. And Ferry was in that concert. Welcome to the Light Switch podcast. Thanks for having me. When did you first realize that the theater was under attack and what was the first thing that went through your mind? Well, you, you must understand that it was just, uh, I mean, it's a night out with your buddies, you're having a beer and uh, maybe in dance. It's just one big vibrant scene, it's one big party. And suddenly, it's, I mean, within a second, you are in a war zone. So it's very hard to really take in what's happening. But my um, initial response was, and the response of everybody in the crowd, that was quite uh, interesting, is that I suddenly was laying on my back and I didn't realize that I went laying down but um, apparently when you're in life danger you're there's this area in your brain they call it the reptile part of your brain that gets switched on and it's it's like controlling you so a thousand people i mean it was a packed place imagine a packed concert within seconds a thousand people they all laid on their back and and i was laying on my back and i had no idea why i did that and then I was scanning the room a little bit and then I saw these uh, I, I did hear some noises behind me but I did not recognize them as uh, gunshots just some loud noise in the back and then I saw uh, three men standing approximately uh, 10 uh, we, we talk in meters I think uh, uh, that's three about feet. 30 feet uh, 30 feet yeah I'm always confused with that 30 feet uh, away from me uh, with a gun and and I thought, well, maybe they're, it's a cop or a security guard. I did not recognize them as uh, terrorists because they were wear, wearing something square, with, with, which I thought was a bulletproof vest. But in the end, it turned out to be a suicide bomb. And they were holding their Kalashnikovs uh, with their, uh, pointing at the ceiling without shooting. And, and they were just scanning the room a little bit. They, yeah, they looked like normal guys, in my opinion, at that time. And then suddenly they were pointing their Kalashnikov at, Kalashnikovs at the spot that I was laying, and they just started shooting the, the three of them. And then, yeah, there's no way to sugarcoat coat that part. But then I see people getting hit and dying right beside me. You know, there's always in seconds, you know, you're having a bar, a baby, you're having a beer, it's, it's one big party, and suddenly there are people getting shot right next to you. 
you have no idea what you are you getting yourself uh, uh, into. We have a thousand yeah. people on the floor lying on their backs, scared to death. Everyone assumed that they were terrorists right off the bat, did they? Well, the, I mean, at the time that the word terrorist didn't, you know, entered my mind. I just saw some guys there that were shooting at me. I mean, it's only until you escape uh, that you think about, oh shit, that was a terrorist attack. But when you're in there, that, that that's not what go, what's going through your mind. It's just like people shooting at me and I need to escape. And they're standing at the exit. I, I had no idea what to do. So we just everybody sta stayed laying down on the floor and total silence. That's not what you would imagine, I think, in a scenery, scenery like that. But nobody screamed or made any noise because you would draw attention to you. So you were lying on the floor, all of you close together, like a can of sardines, so to speak. Exactly, yeah. That's always how I, how I uh, explain it, yeah. And, and there were also, because it was so packed, a lot of people who were, we were all laying on top of each other. I was, I think, the one laying on top. And I think three people were laying under me. So someone, uh, I think two, they, they had no idea what was going on. I mean, I could at least see what was happening. But the other people, they, just, they got to use me as a shield. Uh, so to speak, because the people died, obviously, were laying uh, on top. Yeah, I mean, 89 people were killed that night. Yeah, and, and over uh, 300 were uh, shot. So uh, it, could, it could be just maybe a bullet in, the, in, your, in your feet or in your leg and, and people who, were, who got bullets in their spinal cords or at their legs. Uh, being blown off because the, these Kalashnikov bullets, apparently, I did, didn't know that at the time, but they, they destroy everything inside your body when they enter. How, like is, a, how do they do that? Do they splinter into many pieces? And I, I think it's a very sharp bullet. I don't know if I'm 100% correct, but uh, bullet, bullets uh, cops use, for example, they're really more round and they just uh, they, they use them, you know, if you run away to stop you. But like this Kalashnikov bullet, it really penetrates uh, through your organs and it spins around and it just destroys everything inside. Gosh. I'm sorry, they hardly release any blood, I've been told as well. It just it, it makes like a perfect hole in your body and then destroys, destroys everything inside. I'm so happy I, I had no idea at that time that they were shooting with bullets like that because, because they, this moment came that I had to stand up and try to uh, crawl away. Because after a minute or ten, um, everybody was just laying down and keeping quiet. Um, I, I saw some people, uh, they turned on their stomach and they started to crawl through the venue. And I crawled uh, towards them. I had no idea where they were going to, but apparently there was an emergency exit that somebody had uh, kicked open. So one by one, people were crawling outside. That, that was also the, the amazing thing, that nobody stood up. Everybody just crawled on all fours to the to the exit. But it's also your your brain who decides that. Because because imagine if you would stand up, you would be the easiest target for the terrorist. Now the Batak clan theater was built in 1865, but in the middle of the 1900s, it was used as a cinema. So, yeah, I heard. Yeah. Yeah, and so the emergency exit is kind of back right, and the two two entrances where the terrorists came in were in the front. By the exactly. side of the stage, right? You you really did your homework. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I did. Yeah. Uh, so, Good job. <laughs> so when you got outside, 
of course everyone was just running in a complete panic down the street what was the first thing you did um i, I was also running and uh keeping totally uh quiet which i think there were three or four other guys running next to me and, and you must know that i had three other friends inside uh, bataclan i mean it didn't even cross my mind to check if they were all right it was just get the hell out of there and run away that's also f something you think about later and have a bit of guilt about well why did i didn't i go back in to see if my friends were alive because they all survived uh, miraculously but i didn't find out until hours later but while while i run out of the theater through a small um, uh, alley. I think you saw the video of that, of the people escaping. It's a famous video online. Um, I got my mom and I, we had a brief um, telephone uh, conversation, brief call. Uh, she was sitting on the couch and I didn't call her the night before I went uh, to the concert. And I, a few weeks before we had a chat that, oh, mom, by the way, I'm going to Paris in two weeks. And uh, Oh, have fun. And uh, well, you, you don't call about that anymore. That's how these things go. So she was on the couch and she saw, oh, Ferry is calling me. And she, oh, he's in Paris. And she answered the phone with, uh, ah, bonjour, Ferry. How's it going? And I was just, mom, I'm fine. I'm fine. That's what I keep saying. But they were shooting at a concert and um, a lot of people are dead. And I don't know if my friends are still alive, but I am safe. That's what I kept repeating. I am safe. But I, I, I need to run for shelter, so I had to, uh, you know, uh, end, end the call. And, and, she later, and she later obviously told me that, that she was in blind panic and immediately went online to see if there was something happening in Paris. And her husband was like, wow, maybe someone pulled his gun and just shot once. And uh, it, it's probably not that bad. But, I mean, imagine your, your parents, they, are, they were in front of the TV all night showing this thing unfold you know they first talked about just um, a hostage situation then there were nine people that got shot and then there were 20 then there were 30 40 it just kept on getting worse oh it was the most horrific non-wartime yeah. non news to ever come out of paris yeah it's it's it's, it's uh i always say it's, it's like a tarantino movie it's it's hard to uh, comprehend at the time when you're in it you know uh, so so you're you're out of the theater you've called your mother and you're covered in blood at this point, other people's blood. Yeah. You mentioned that a, a family kind of took you in for a little while. We, um, I think at one time, at one point, we were a group of eight running uh, through the streets, and we had no idea where to go. We were really, really scared on the streets because I was afraid that they would run out of the theater and, you know, just shoot everybody outside. So we, uh, like, we are these eight people, and we run into this uh, bar, it's a bar restaurant it's a parisian bistro and uh people it's a friday night people are having a, i mean the place is packed people are having a, having a glass of wine and something to eat and we, we storm in that place immediately into the kitchen eight eight people i mean which is a bit weird obviously and um, the head chef that is cooking he is uh he gets really angry and he kicks us out of the kitchen like uh, you know what's what's going on get out of here and then someone is screaming that there is a terrorist attack in the neighborhood and then people are looking at us and they are noticing that we are covered in red stuff and they understand that it's blood at that uh, time. Blind panic in the place. The, the owner, he, he closes all the doors and turns off all the lights and takes us to a small room on the first floor. Then that's when there's this one lady. She's aware of the fact that I don't speak uh, uh, French and that I lost my uh, French. 
and she uh yeah she invites me into her home she says Let, let's get out of here let's go to my place and you can call your family and try to uh contact your friends so already already that's always what i emphasize in my presentation that i'm or at that point you know after almost being shot there's already i mean the best of mankind you know just just this total stranger that says come to my place i'll take care of you she, apparently she was a nurse wow you fell into lucky hands yeah yeah i, I mean we were uh, i always see myself as a refugee at that point i mean looking for a safe spot and that was my refugee hideout at night what was I, your state I, of mind at this point i was in total shock it's it's uh i remember looking at myself in the mirror and i mean my, my eyes were i mean just black and that's apparently a part of uh of the shock you're in and it's a ptsd obviously already but very very traumatic and there's a lot of adrenaline in your system and i'm sure that the sound of those bullets were ringing through your head it's 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 still a sound i can um it's it's easy to relive because at the time i didn't know it were bullets that there were bullet shots but now i even know um that those loud noises i heard behind me that, that, that they were shooting at the bar and at um uh, merchandise so now there are also some faces that are behind those bullets you know i, I saw on the photo of of all the people who, who got shot that, that those were probably the ones that got shot when i heard those noises so that's something that's still in my system every now and then if i would hear a loud noise out of the blue i mean it's easy to re relive those uh, moments and uh, b b because it was impossible to get out of the city uh, because there were that night there were several attacks there was one in a football stadium and there were several attacks in uh, bars so there were 130 people uh, th th there was the death total of uh, that night my friends they were um, taken by the police to file um, um, a victim testimony uh, uh, report and um, so that, that took the whole almost the whole night for them so we made a deal that we were uh, going to meet the next morning so we were in contact uh, through a messenger via through a telephone that night and then the next morning uh, we were reunited at the hotel we were supposed to sleep which we never went to it's a tarantino movie really what what i find interesting about this story is that when you left Amsterdam to drive down to Paris to go to this rock concert you were not considered the nicest guy in the world and you felt as though you were filled with anger but after this event you talk about how much of a nice guy you've become and how your heart opened yeah that's that's really um, that's that's really amazing to uh, to go through all these uh, phases and emotions but I think um, I mean, I looked death in the eye that night. I saw I saw people dying right right beside me, and it just makes you skip bullshit from your life. I think it's why am I always complaining? Why I always need more money? Why do I I always need a bigger car? I mean, just just enjoy life and 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 be nice. I was always angry with everybody. I was always jealous, and if I if I had a setback, it was always someone else's fault. I was one of those guys that never could have a, I could never have a look in the mirror when something went went wrong. I was, it was I always blamed other people, and I wasn't aware of this transition that I was going through. But my surroundings were really aware of it. Like there's something different about you. You you're just a really nice guy out of the blue, and there were, there was always something with you in the past. No, and and. Um, while this transition was, was going on that I wasn't really aware of. Um, the, the funny thing is that you, that 
other people that have that, those same values, those, they're drawn to you. You know, you suddenly find yourself surrounded by people with a positive mindset. And, and then I thought, I, I never want to lose this again. This is awesome. And, and I really noticed now that I was really an asshole in the past. I really said sorry to a lot of people. Like, I'm so sorry about that, that one, one time that I called you an asshole or at this big fight or this argument. And, and, and I just never want to be angry anymore with, with people. And, and that has triggered so much amazing. I have so many things in my life that I could only dream about in the past. I mean, this public speaking career, it's, I, I never knew, would have dreamed, dreamt it was an option, you know? It's amazing what can yeah. happen when you shift your, your your mindset and your energy is what attracts other energy to you yeah yeah and that's something i was a bit modest about but i i noticed it's just true if, if you're just a nice guy you i just did a small speaking tour through california and i was all by myself for one month and the first night i was in san francisco i went to the to a bar just just have a beer uh, just me and and there's this guy that's that's sitting uh, right next to me, and I'm I'm reading the book, The Solo Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I, I bet you know it. Yeah, it was a huge bestseller. Yeah, What's it called? I, it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, right? I, I was drawn to that title already. I thought that, that sounds like my language. <laughs> that's 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 my uh, that, that's my kind of book. And and we just uh, chat a little bit, and within two minutes, it's it's. Um, I'm talking about my feelings. He talk, he's talking about this, about his emotions, about his wife who, who had just left him. And I mean, it's just within minutes. You, if there's a connection with someone, it's it's immediately. Um, I'm looking for the right words, um, but on a much deeper level than I would have conversations uh, with in the past. And I mean, we became friends. I mean, if I ever go to back to San Francisco, I'm going to give him a call. We're going to have a beer, you know. Of course. My whole, my whole trip was like that. I've got friends all over California, Nevada, and Hawaii now. It's, it's, and that would never happen in the past. And that's what you, exactly what you said. It's your energy. Like people feel they can approach you or have a chat with you. or That, that you listen, I think. That's also a thing. Because a lot of people don't really listen when you talk. They don't. They're just waiting for their moment. Exactly. And you can, t- you can see it in their eyes. You know, they, they, they have some awesome quote ready and you're just waiting for you to finish and and blur it out and don't listen to what you have to say and are you still in touch with the with the nurse in paris that saved you that night brought you in yeah she became uh although they're all family for that matter they became an instant family it's 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 uh it happened that night already but also those guys i mean the the parisians they are not known for their hospitality uh, i mean they're, they're people that really they're really to themselves and I, I don't know, I walked into the, right, uh, the warmest family. I mean, it's, it's impossible to find people like that in Paris. And I, I just happen to have an encounter with them. And I visited them for like, I think, 10 times already since, I'm, since the attack happened. Gosh. So, uh, yeah. they, 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 they are family. I see them as family. Now, Ferry, you also became, which I find absolutely remarkable, you became friends with one of the terrorists' fathers. How did you yeah. find him? A week after the attack, um, we were also we were already on a, a national TV, and um, the talk show that invited us um, a year later, um, I saw that that they had um, they had um, Azadin Amimur, the father of one of the terrorists, as a guest, and I thought, whoa, I want to meet him. So I um, 
I had I had uh, I still had the phone number of the pr- producer from that uh, talk show, and I I said, wow, I really want to meet this guy backstage. If you can try to arrange this, and and they were obviously really uh, excited about the about the idea, and they said, oh, we we might try to um, to to get you in front of the camera as well. I said, no, I don't want that. I just want to meet him. And so they set up a meeting backstage. It was right uh, before the talk show aired, so it was a bit crowded, and uh, there were a lot of people who were, you know, trying to get a piece of it. And me and my other friends was also there in the Bataclan that night. He went with me, uh, Bob, and we just had a brief talk. And uh, we also felt really good energy uh, with him, and, and we just exchanged uh, phone numbers and, and and invited him for dinner a few weeks later in Brussels. In Brussels, that's where we met him, and then we really. Had the chance to have a, a nice and long conversation with him. He uh, he shared his son's story. You know what what, what made this uh, sweet and innocent boy that had a decent education uh, and, and was brought up in a really uh, in a good environment. It's, it's not an environment that I would have guessed. Um, uh, IS terrorists would would have been brought up. And yeah, because they usually come from abject poverty. Yeah, that's true. So th- th- this is really interesting. You know why this did this boy who has who seemed to have everything uh decides to join is and uh, his father explained this this progress a bit he was um, uh, when he turned 25 he was up, upstairs in his room all day he, he was um, online uh, listening to uh, preachers all day something he would never do they are a muslim family but they didn't go to the mosque every day uh, the mother doesn't wear a scarf and uh, neither does his uh his uh, sisters whereabouts and, did he grow up which country they were born. I mean, the father was born in Algeria, and uh, but but they lived in um, in a city in the north of um, uh, Paris called uh, Drancy, a very small town. Oh, I see. So he he was he was brought up uh, close to uh, Paris. That's where he spent his whole life, and uh, he he showed some photos of his son that they went on a holiday and they were playing uh, they were playing in the pool together. I thought oh, that's that could have been me, you know, if you would look at that photos. And then, yeah, his father, he just saw a change in his behavior when he kept on f- following these online preachers and he let his beard grow. He was wearing a jalaba, you know, the traditional Muslim sure. uh, clothing. And also saying to his parents, like, uh, wh- why don't you guys go to the mosque more often? We're not uh, real. This is not what Allah wants. And so, they, yeah, they, they really saw that he was changing. And his father said it, that he was also um, getting into the wrong crowd in, the, in their neighborhood guys he would never hang out with in the past and suddenly uh, he would see them every day and they were all guys uh, dressed in uh, jalabas and uh, so I think his father thinks that, that that it was already happening at that time and he, di- he didn't think anything about it he was thought he thought well he just yeah he, he's, he's just diving into the Muslim culture a bit more and some boys do that they, they don't all join IS in the end obviously but um, he saw it happening at that time when he was 25 so more or less how old was he when he did the attacks I, f- I think it's two years later i'm not 100 sure 27 28 or something and his, his parents didn't even they, they didn't know he was in uh in europe they thought he was in uh, syria gosh and you, Where, you had a confrontation with salah abdaslam the other only the only man who survived the attacks the terrorists who have survived yeah we um also me, me and my friend uh, bob we found out that he uh, stood trial in uh, Brussels, and it was not for the Bataclan um, uh, hearing, but it was for a shooting incident in um, uh, Molenbeek. That's an area in uh, Brussels. Um, th- that's when they arrested him. 
because he was on the loose for uh, on the run for a couple of months. So I stood trial for that um, incident, and um, a commercial news station called me if we wanted to attend the the trial. And they said that they could they could arrange the places inside the courtroom. And so yeah, we I was really eager on doing that, and not you know to get answers answers being uh, questions being answered by him, but just I just want to have wanted to have a good look at him. And right. uh, yeah, we, we were sitting like uh, five, four, five feet away from him. No, um, more and more. I think t- uh, 10 feet away from him. More or less. <laughs> you can go with meters. I'll translate it for you. Yeah, three or five meters, something like that. So really okay. close. Wow. What did he look like? <laughs> oh, I, I, I kind of felt sorry for him a bit because he entered the courtroom and uh, everyone was like, oh, there he is. But he, he, was, he was really, really a tiny guy. And he was, you know, his shoulders were hanging a little bit down and yeah, I mean, if he would pass me on the street, I wouldn't even look at him, you know. It was just just the average dude. And he, he, he looked a lot different than the time I saw. Um, I saw him on the photos uh, all, all the time after the attack. He had his, his hair was a lot longer. Yeah, he just looked like any other guy. Did he also grow up in France? I'm not I'm not sure about that. I, I know he, uh, I think he lived in uh, Molen. Molenbeek as well, but but his parents up this lump sounds it doesn't yeah I think it sounds Moroccan a bit, but I'm not 100 percent sure of that. It, uh, I, I, it's probably that his parents came from, they migrated to uh, this part of Europe that happened a lot with uh, boys his age, and that he is brought up in Europe. That's what I think, but I'm not 100 percent sure. And I, I know there's one terrorist that was a refugee, but I, I just know a lot about uh, Semi Amimur. The one who obviously isn't alive anymore. Did they put this chap in the in the courtroom in Brussels away for many many years? Yeah, for the shooting incident, he got um, twenty years, and and the Bataclan trial will be in uh, two thousand twenty. So he will never see the light of day anymore. That that's why he will be locked up the rest of his life. How did you cope with coming back into normal life after that night? Uh, th- th- there was a progress that took over two years. I mean, um, after two years, I was just destroyed and I called in sick and I, I was at home for eight months and I lost my job uh, because of that as well. I always say the, I've, I've had the trauma that night uh, inside the Bataclan, obviously, but this, my second trauma was losing my job. And it wasn't just a job thing, but I mean, if you have, if you, I really liked my job. I, I loved my colleagues, the company I was working for and I mean, it's also traumatic if you're if you're suddenly divorced from that, uh, from those people. You know, you know, just within, just like that. You know, nobody called uh, after that, seeing how I was doing. I really felt like I had done something wrong. You know, so there was a second trauma. It took me a really long time uh, to get over that, but it was a second trauma, really, and it was maybe even harder to process than the first one. You also said that the. The other trauma you faced was the media onslaught. What did they do? It's um, I give a lot of presentations to uh, to journalists as well about this topic. They invite me. And I, I'm happy they do. Um, but they just treat you as a number. I mean, I always say I always say to them, "You guys, you brought a camera to a funeral, calling you every day, and they ring your doorbell. They're calling your parents. They're calling your girlfriend. Your your your." Your boss, your on Facebook, they they look up your niece, your 16-year-old niece, who of course is going to give your phone number. It's not what you need at a time like that. It's uh, 
and I really try to make them aware of it. That you know, you know, what what if it was you or your child that goes through that and is being attacked by you guys like wolves? It's uh, no, it's not what you need. And and did you ever face your fears and go back to a rock concert after a week already? One week after the Bataclan. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's also a thing. I mean, it's such a huge part of my life going to a rock concert. I mean, I have long hair, I have a lot of tattoos. It's what I like. I um, I think four times a month, maybe three, four times a month, I go to a, a rock show. Tomorrow I go to a big uh, music festival for uh, three days, and I already bought the ticket. And it it was a week after the attack, and I, it it would have been harder not to go because if I wouldn't go. I would sit on the couch knowing that the concert that I was really looking forward to was going on and I wasn't there. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go and I'm, and it's probably going to be hard the first time and it was a bit difficult. I mean, it was really, I was again in a venue like the Bataclan and a lot of flashbacks and I felt a bit emotional. But you, you must know we were on TV four days before that concert and a few million people, I think four million people had seen it. I mean, we're... 10 million, uh, 30 million people country. So we're really small. So a lot of people recognized me. And they were like, Jesus, man, you are here after a week. And like uh, I was being hugged and uh, people, they were calling me a hero, making selfies. So it was a really nice experience, that first concert. And so I'm, I'm happy I, uh, I went back that, that, that soon. What message would you like to tell the world? who, you know, we are living in the age of terrorism, and a lot of people live their lives a little bit in fear, and they kind of miss out on these activities. What's your yeah, message to those people? I mean, j just live your life. You know, if you want to go to a concert, go to a concert. If you want to go to the beach, we, are, we had an attack on the beach. I mean, in uh, Tunisia, where people got shot, on, on the Christmas market, on the boulevard, in, uh, in uh, Nice, in... Uh, uh, Barcelona. I mean, that's all the places that we go to for entertainment, you know, for relaxation. That's it's our freedom or something. I mean, don't let that be taken away from you because then these guys they they win. I mean, we, we all get step on a plane. I mean, there is a chance. It's a very very small chance that you're that you're in the plane crash and then you will die. <laughs> and there's a very very tiny chance that you're confronted with a terrorist attack. And that's and if you're confronted with an attack, most people survive. I mean. I was in a venue and the total, there were 1,200 people inside because there was two levels with seatings as well. I mean, yeah, 89 people got shot and that's a lot, but most people, they, they still survived. So it's it's not something you, sh you should not lead your life guided by fear for these kind of things because that's exactly what they're trying to accomplish. Ferry Zandvli, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been an absolute fascination. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Light Switch Podcast, hosted by me, James Robinson. Please feel free to share this and other episodes on your social media. And why not follow us on Instagram? Our handle is at Robinson Speakers. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And why not subscribe to the Light Switch newsletter and follow us on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thank you again for your support, and of course, for listening. I hope you found it interesting, 